This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. Today, we're joined by Steve Strong, one of the firm's senior advisors and the former head of Goldman Sachs Research, to talk about the investing landscape and all the volatility of the past few months. Steve and his team just put out a new report called The Great Reset, a framework for investing after COVID-19, which we'll be diving into today. Welcome to the program, Steve. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jake. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Steve, one of the core theses of this report is that the new economy post-COVID should look very different than the economy that we saw coming into the crisis, and that capitalism in all its glory will lead the way by reallocating capital. Why do you view, and it's not everyone's view, why do you view COVID-19 as a real rule-changing event for investing? Well, there's a couple of things. First, we're going to see a fair number of, of business failures. A lot of teetering business models will fall, and that will reshape the landscape. But you, people have also learned an incredible amount of things in this process that they will put to work afterwards. Um, we refer to it, and we'll talk about this later, as sticky learning, but we, we've all learned how to use Zoom. We've all learned how to use telemedicine. We've all learned, actually, a lot of people learned how to cook better than they used to be able to cook, Right. All of those things are going to reshape forward choices. The other thing is a lot of business models are going to be hard to utilize exactly the way they were in the past. Restaurants get a lot of attention, but particularly in major cities, if we end up with social distancing as a permanent part of the landscape, that's going to change the way restaurants are structured. Digital stores are going to change the way retail works. We're also going to see a major acceleration of changes that might have taken 20 years take two. It's tempting to want to simplify the applications, extrapolate from today's trends into into longer-term themes. You caution against that approach. What's the issue with that approach, and how did your team think about setting up a framework that will help guide investing in the post-COVID-19 era? Well, I, I think the key thing in a framework is understanding the difference between the circumstances of the moment and the forces that have been unleashed to change the economy. You know, what I call phases, which are sort of the way one adjusts to change, and themes, which are the fundamental drivers that are going to determine how things are reshaped. So let's get into the themes. You talk about four different post-COVID-19 themes, resilience, sticky learning, which you talked about briefly, risk-based market segmentation, that's a mouthful, and regulatory (laughs) resets. Let's dig a little bit deeper into each of those. Start with resilience. What do you mean by resilience as an investment theme? So resilience will probably be the thing that most changes the economy, but may be the least apparent to the average consumer. A lot of things failed in the last three months. Supply chains failed, computer systems failed, the ability of businesses to adjust and work from home systems failed. Everyone's going to have learned from those successes and failures. And the core of that is going to be looking at systems and valuing systems that operate well under stress versus maybe saving a penny or a dime, but allowing your supply lines to be stretched and fragile. And so I think a lot of changes we're going to see are going to have to do with making sure the system can take a hit and keep operating. Uh, You know, the simplest, most public example of this is what happened in hospitals. We've been closing hospitals for the last 30 years under the guise of efficiency. Now, all of a sudden, we needed more hospital beds, and that efficiency became a public health problem. And so I think much like the electricity system where we demand excess capacity, much like the oil and gas systems where we demand excess capacity, I think we're going to relook at medical care 
to make sure there is excess capacity in the system to deal with emergencies in ways we didn't think about before. We've seen equivalent things like in the food supply chain. You know, we've all gotten used to having every vegetable and every fruit available 12 months a year. But in some cases, that meant incredibly complicated, incredibly fragile supply lines where everything was coming from one place everywhere in the world. And that's caused all sorts of terrible snarls in the system, right? Where two plants going down all of a sudden caused it to be difficult to get a, you know, a hamburger in Nebraska, right? Those kinds of things are going to cause people to rethink their supply lines into more resilient structures. The other thing, which I think is one of the more complex aspects of this is resiliency versus control. There's a natural human inclination when things fail to want to take control of them. You know, well, they failed me, I can do better. But one of the things a lot of people learned here was you were actually a lot better off if you had specialty firms doing things, right? A firm that was trying to run its payroll from inside its own offices probably failed to deliver a payroll. One that was using a global payroll vendor probably succeeded in getting their people paid. If you were using a global logistics company, you had abilities to adjust around the problems. If you were running your own trucks, you probably failed, right? And so that those global, what, what I sort of say, local everywhere global firms really prove to have an advantage here because they're the ones who could adjust their operations to deal with the local disturbances, regardless of where they were. And the sort of stretched out supply lines, whether they were within the United States or within Europe or stretched all the way to China, generally failed, right? It was, it was the ones that were sort of had redundancy built into them that succeeded. And so I think as people relook at their supply systems, relook at their computer systems, relook at their payroll systems, they're going to be make sure that they have ones that sort of can take local problems and still operate. That's really going to help global vendors and sort of what typically are called platform vendors, people who specialize in one thing, do it well, do it for a lot of people from a lot of places, and therefore have the scale to be able to build that redundancy in and still be efficient. Okay, so that's resilience. And in many ways, one industry that held up pretty well in this crisis was the financial sector, which since 2009 has had to test itself for resilience on a regular basis. So maybe there's a lesson to be learned there. Let's talk about sticky learning, which I think my kids would like that name. What do you mean by that? (laughs) Well, we've learned a lot of things in this period we probably would not have chosen to learn, but we won't be able to forget. That's where the sticky comes from, right? Typically, learning is a process that slows things down because learning is expensive. It takes time. It takes a lot of human capital, and it's very risky. This case, we learned lots of things that no one would have ever chosen to learn. Uh, You mentioned the resilience of finance. Well, part of the resilience of finance was, right, depending on the firm, half, three quarters, or 98% of the people could work from home. No one would have tried that six months ago. Right. If you had suggested a 25% work-from-home experimental program in a major financial institution, they would have laughed at you. But under these circumstances, they hit 98% or 99%. We operated entire transaction systems remotely. Lots of people found themselves migrating to the cloud for very high percentages of their operations in ways they would not have been willing to take the risk to do. People, right? A lot of people all of a sudden learned how to do telemedicine, to do follow-up medical treatments, to do physical therapy, right? They would not necessarily have chosen to do that, neither the doctor nor the patient. Having learned to do it, it's now part of the landscape. Now, that doesn't mean everything we've done the last three months we're going to do forever, right? Some of this learning worked. 
Some of it didn't. Um, and what I mean by that is telemedicine is a great example. Now that we've used it for a lot of things, we're going to go back and look at which things telemedicine was a very good or maybe superior substitute to going into the office for. A follow-up visit to determine whether to renew a prescription probably is an example where telemedicine may be a perfectly fine substitute to a doctor's visit. Rural healthcare. Again, we'll probably see lots of telemedicine stick in rural healthcare. On the other hand, there's also medical care where telemedicine isn't really going to work, right? You know, dentists probably are not going to switch to doing things by remote, right? Physical therapy is not probably something where most physical therapy can be done remotely efficiently. And so that stuff will move back into the office. But it does mean we'll know Right. And, and it's going to change a lot of things. Like one of the things that's probably going to be really important in a lot of offices is telework. Now, we've seen it work really well for some things. We've seen it work really badly for other things. But prob there's probably not a company in the world that hasn't learned things about people working from home that they ever would have chosen to learn without this event. And so probably every company in the world is going to end up with a higher percentage of people working from home than they would have in the past. Right? That's going to change office patterns. It's going to change hiring patterns. Um, it's going to change the demand for real estate. It's going to change the structure and the design of offices themselves. Okay. So my least favorite title, but um, maybe you'll explain to me why it's important, risk-based market segmentation. What exactly do you mean by that? And I'll, I'll work <laughs> on a better name. Hopefully we'll have one by the end of the podcast. I don't think you will because part of what we're encapsulating there is this is actually an ugly concept. This is one of those places where people, I think the, the, the tendency to reach for an easy answer is very tempting. Everyone's going to be more risk averse. Everyone's going to be more frightened of interaction. Everyone's going to be socially distant for the rest of time. All sorts of simple summaries of how we're going to change the way we live. Most of them based in fear. What you're actually going to see, and we've seen this with other events of this sort, is people are going to sort themselves between a kind of life is too short response to crisis and a true risk aversion. And the people who get more risk averse are going to demand services that allow them to be more socially distant, that allow them to feel safer. Other people are going to crowd back into restaurants. They're going to crowd back into the beaches. They're going to demand life experiences. You know, what, one of the observations I've made a lot in the last month is that after the Spanish influenza, right, if you listen to people do the quick history, it sounds like the next thing was the Great Depression. Now, that was more than a decade later. What happened in between was the jazz age, life is too short, and prohibition, we need to sort of change the way we live to something that's less risky to pay for our sins. We're probably going to see that same kind of dichotomy develop now, where we're going to see people embracing life, and we're going to see people embracing their fears. And businesses are going to have to adjust to both of those and reshape themselves to those extremes. You know, if, if you go to China today and you go into a restaurant, if that restaurant is youth-themed, odds are it is like more crowded than it was before COVID. If it's sort of one of those sedate old people's restaurants, it may not even have reopened yet. And we're going to see that in the U.S. You know, it, it was fascinating. I was reading this article on the partying going on at the, uh, at the Lake of the Ozarks. So all these kids went, they're throwing a big party, and a bunch of them went interviewed and said, yeah, then when we go home, we'll, like, we'll hide for two weeks to make sure we didn't get sick. But I'll skip whether I believe that speech or not, but it does go to, you know, we're going to go still have our fun, and we'll manage the consequences of that in other ways. And that's part of why the notion of market segmentation, those two groups are going to split, and the market's going to have to split to accommodate that. One of the interesting things we're going to see this fall is colleges and high schools. 
most students are in the low risk population, right? Probably in the life is too short category. You only live once. A lot of the faculty may be in the other category. And so the universities are going to be faced with trying to figure out what to do with the work rules for the faculty and the students. And so we may see a lot of classes with very clouded classrooms with imported faculty on, on, on tubes and LCD screens as a way of keeping the faculty safe. The socially distant faculty may be very distant, right? And, and that's the kind of thing I think we're going to see everyone adjusting to is this deep split in the system between people who need more safety and people who don't. And the medical answers aren't going to make that necessarily that different, right? So vaccines, you know, one of the big hopes typically don't work that well on older people. They work a lot better on younger people. So that'll further split the difference between those two groups. That's why it ended up being risk-based segmentation. We're not going to go one way. We're going to go many ways. It's probably going to depend on income, job type, medical vulnerability, and just attitude toward life. And that attitude toward life aspect of this is what is going to generate a lot of randomness in the outcomes that businesses are going to be forced to accommodate. Okay. Having listened to you, I'm going to call it risky business. Uh, and I'll know <laughs> what that means. I suspect, by the way, a lot of college students will be perfectly happy with the campus with no faculty and just, and just students. Talk about regulatory reset. I get what that means, but explain why you think that's important in this context. Well, so we're, we're obviously going to see all major events generate a legislative and regulatory response. The first wave of that is going to be aimed at things that were perceived as failures. So I used an example earlier of hospital capacity. I suspect we're going to see a lot of blue ribbon commissions looking at hospital capacity and coming to the conclusion that we didn't have enough and creating regulatory structures that look a lot like electrical utility structures where capacity requirements will be set. Right? We're also probably going to look at drug development and come to the conclusion we were too risk-averse, that one of the reasons we didn't have enough drugs to deal with this is that various drug agencies were too worried about the dangers of testing, not taking account the dangers of not having the drugs. And so I think we'll see both risk-embracing regulatory changes and risk-avoiding ones in medicine. In infrastructure and food, I think we'll see similar changes where you'll see a, a various failures that occurred in the food supply chains will get reviewed by regulators and cause changes in the rules that we'll all have to adjust to. Most of that will, will sort of benefit the people who are good at this and create real cost structures for the people who weren't. Because essentially, we'll figure out what standards were necessary to have navigated COVID and we'll make more people live up to them. And whether that's, you know, spacing in restaurants or excess capacity in hospitals or logistic systems for moving people within hospital systems or negative pressure rooms or whatever the requirements are, ventilation in office buildings, all of those things are going to be looked at. Then I think we'll see another version of this later on where that's going to lead to significant consolidation phases. We'll probably talk about it in a little bit. And that will probably set up a second regulatory wave of regulators not liking what happened with the first group of regulations. After the financial crisis, we made banks safer. That generated a lot of consolidation in banking. Then you saw rules that were aimed at reducing consolidation in banking, right? We saw rules that reduced access of lower income individuals to bank services. Then we saw rules opening it back up. So there's a natural kind of pendulum swing that operates within these regulatory processes. So, Steve, you also pointed something that gets a lot of attention in the press and, and commentary, 
empty spaces, but you say that's not a theme. What do you mean by that? Sure. So one of the things that we're already talking about is sort of empty storefronts that, you know, how many businesses are going to fail and the implications of that consolidation in various industries. And we are going to see that. The problem with referring to that as a theme is a lot of those empty spaces are places that were going to fail anyway. And a lot of them are going to be filled by new businesses that are created that would have been a natural consequence of any set of changes. You know, restaurants turn over on a pretty regular basis. Small retail turns over on a pretty regular basis. A small business in general is a highly dynamic zone of the economy that's constantly both creating and destroying jobs. That dynamism is essential to the overall economy, uh, but is it really going to be part of COVID? But what's going to happen, right, is that because we're going to see a lot of businesses fail in a very short period of time, that part of this dynamism is going to get thought of as a COVID theme that'll then kind of just disappear over time back into the natural dynamism of the economy, right? The fact that something's empty doesn't mean it needs to be filled, but in some cases it will. In some cases, it'll be filled by a large entrant. In some cases, it'll be filled by a new entrant. There isn't going to be any logical, coherent structure to filling those empty spaces. So trying to invest in it as a theme isn't really going to be doable. Individually, any one of those empty spaces represents an investment possibility, but there's no overall guiding thematic structure to it. You also make the point that an outcome is not a theme. Give us an example to make that point concrete. Sure. Well, real estate is probably the place we're going to see this most often, right? What's going to happen in the real estate market is going to be this incredibly complicated mixing of different themes. You, you may have older individuals who are seeking safer territory to live in. You may have younger individuals relocating for new job opportunities, having been dislocated from their prior ones. You're going to see businesses that have a lot of people in them need to space those people out more. That's going to increase demand. You're going to see businesses that have learned a lot from work from home or worked well, allow people to work more from home, and that's going to reduce demand. And so, you know, at some level, you know, six months from now, that's going to have changed demand in one way, 12 another way, 18 in two years and three years. We're going to see trends in real estate. They're going to be the outgrowth of those deeper underlying themes, right? But that won't stop people from labeling it and calling it a theme, right? The resuburbanization of the economy. I've already heard that one right? Because some people are going to move to the suburbs. Uh, our tech companies are going to you know, allow people to work from home. Many finance companies will. Great. Are those people going to choose to live in cities or are they going to choose to lose, live on farms? We'll figure that out over the next couple of years. History suggests that they'll probably end up back in the cities. You know, cities have been the centers of various disruptions since, since cities were invented, right? Diseases have ravaged cities. Riots have savage cities. Crimes and wars have all savage cities. Yet they continually repopulate and get bigger, right? They don't necessarily get bigger with the same people. This probably will work out the same, but over how many years and with what will take time to figure out. Okay, so finally, what's one part of investing in the post-pandemic age that your framework suggests is getting too much or not enough attention? Well, I think the best way of summing that up is talking about the phases we're going through. Early on in any kind of crisis like this, almost all of the attention goes to what I would call preservation activities, shoring up balance sheets, making sure you have cash on hand, just trying to survive until the rules are reset. And that gets most of the mind share in the early days. Then you move on and 
some business models are just clear failures and other people are true successes. That generates a lot of consolidation and in markets, very narrow breadth in the market where the winners keep winning. You know, put, put yourself right now in, in the place of a purchasing manager at a corporation. Three or four of your vendors were able to deliver consistently in the last three months and three or four of them were not. You're going to consolidate your business to work the ones who worked well. And that's going to drive a lot of consolidation across the economy, right? And that in turn, um, that's where we are now, where people are trying to focus on sort of the winners. And I think that's probably the thing right now that's getting sort of the majority of the attention, probably too much in the following sense, that some of the consolidation is going to prove to be very temporary. You know, an edge in digital today is a super big edge because the stores aren't open. But as, as storefronts reopen, that digital edge will shrink back. And then, and I think this is the really critical element, we're going to learn how to manage around COVID and to COVID. And we're also going to have learned which systems manage resilience well, manage the risk segmentation well, manage the other themes well. That's going to allow a whole new group of companies to retool and innovate and go after the winners. That's what we refer to as the innovation phase. And I think that's, that to me is where a lot of the really interesting investments are going to end up being, is those new innovators, the ones who learn from the companies who worked well now, but they didn't work well now because they were geniuses about everything. They just happened to have been well-structured to deal with the current emergency. Other companies will take what we learned and they'll create superior models, more resilient, cheaper systems, and they will then fight for that market share. And I think those new companies, that some of them may be old companies that retool, are going to be sort of the, the new winners. And I think that's probably the most interesting spaces going forward that right now aren't get, isn't getting that much attention. All right, Steve. Well, there's a lot to chew over. The full report, The Great Reset, a framework for investing after COVID-19 is available wherever you find your Goldman Sachs research, uh, GS Now or on the uh, various GIR websites. Thanks for joining us today, Steve. Fascinating as always. Take care, Jake. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a comment. And tune in for our weekly markets update Friday morning, where leaders around the firm provide a quick take on the latest in markets. This podcast was recorded on Monday, June 1st, 2020. Thank you. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.